And um, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. I had thought about um, um, staying in Romans chapter 8, but um, <laughs> I really did think that, but I thought, you know, I just better not. Um, so I didn't. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. And uh, I want us to, uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, rather, I want us to look at a unique aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And what I'm doing is I'm actually piggybacking off of Romans chapter 8 because the Holy Spirit is mentioned several times and His unique ministry to believers is mentioned several times in Romans chapter 8. We've been set free from the law of sin by the law of the Spirit of life which is in Christ Jesus. The Spirit bears witness with us in the middle of Romans chapter 8 that we are indeed God's children. Uh, we don't know how to pray as we ought, Romans 8.26, but the Spirit knows and is able to help us in our prayers so that we're praying according to the mind and will of God. And therefore, I wanted us to just to take an aside in Ephesians chapter 5 and look at a unique aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry to believers. The Spirit of God is active in Ephesians in the believer's life. The opening chapter, for example, says that you and I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. He guarantees the preservation he guarantees the purchase of Christ. He guarantees that we do indeed belong to the Lord through the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 1 prays that the Holy Spirit might open our understanding, that He might illuminate the eyes of our heart in the New King James Version so that we might know what is the hope of our calling and what are the riches of God's grace, His inheritance in the saints, and that we might know the exceeding greatness of His power which works in those who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus. It's the Spirit of God that gives life in Ephesians 2. It's the Spirit of God that gives and sustains access to the Father through Christ near the end of Ephesians chapter 2. It's the Holy Spirit that strengthens believers inwardly so that they might be able to comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ. And finally, here in Ephesians chapter 5, we come to understand beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 21 that it's the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who fills and indwells believers with His presence and with His power. So I want us to look for just a few minutes this evening in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 18 and reading through verse 21. Uh, the Bible says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God, or some translations will say in the fear of Christ. Uh, holy is more than a name for the Holy Spirit. It's more than a title. It is the focus of His work. It relates to what He does in us and what He does through us. If you'll hold your place in Ephesians chapter 5 for just a minute and turn over to chapter 1, Ephesians begins uh, with a burst of praise. Paul is incarcerated, awaiting an uncertain outcome um, at, um, at a Roman tribunal. And he starts this letter, this church that he had planted on his third missionary trip, which is described in Acts chapter 19 in very graphic terms. Extraordinary things happen through the hands of Paul as he proclaimed the gospel at, uh, at Ephesus. And this epistle opens with a tremendous burst of praise in chapter 1 as 
Paul praises God for all the spiritual blessings that are ours in heavenly places. And he says that, that the Father planned our salvation. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the Father sent the Son, and the Son willingly came in Ephesians 1 verse 7 to redeem us, or literally to purchase our salvation, to buy us as sons and daughters of the living God. And then the Holy Spirit comes from the Father and the Son in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13 to apply to us all that Christ has purchased for us. Do you follow that? The, the Father planned salvation. The Son purchased salvation. And the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to apply to us all that the Son has purchased for us. And so if you'll turn back to Ephesians 5 now as a part of the applicational ministry of the Holy Spirit in His applying to us the work of Christ, He fills us, He empowers us, He possesses us, He indwells us. The Spirit in applying salvation brings us from being spiritually dead and trespasses and sins to being spiritually alive in Christ. It's called the new birth or regeneration. Apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we can't see the kingdom of God, let alone enter the kingdom of God. It's the Holy Spirit who guarantees and sets the seal of God's love upon us. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. As Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12, he places us into this community of faith by his unique work. And then Ephesians 5:18 and 21 says that the Spirit of God then fills us and enables us to pursue a life that honors and pleases Christ through obedience to His revealed will. So, suffice it to say that the Holy Spirit's filling, His presence, His power, is indispensable to salvation. He is absolutely necessary for you and I to come to believe and trust in Christ. He's absolutely necessary for us then to grow and mature and experience life transformation in Christ And in Ephesians 5, the context in which this is given in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, is an important context. Brent, are you still in here? Somewhere has Brent vacated the premises. Okay. Um, Brent is not in here. That's all right. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Look at the context in which this comes about being filled with the Spirit. Now, brace yourselves. It comes right after chapter 4. That's pretty impressive exegesis, isn't it? Ephesians 5 comes right after Ephesians chapter 4. But the important thing here is that Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 deal with the application of grace. It deals with the application of the gospel. There's a pattern in Scripture. There's an order in Scripture. And uh, it's something called the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives and the imperatives. Let me see if I can explain that simply. The indicatives simply declare what God has done. It's a statement of what God has done. And in the Scripture, the imperatives, the commands, always follow what God has done. Let me illustrate that if I may. In Ephesians chapter 1, again, you don't have to turn there, but the Father planned salvation, the Son purchased salvation, the Spirit applies salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, you and I, in verse 1, were dead in trespasses and sins. Before we came to Christ, we were spiritually dead, estranged, cut off, separated 
from the life that was in God. Ephesians 2.1 says that we walked according to the course of this world. We were by nature objects of God's wrath. And we were under the, the authority or the power, the influence of the prince of the power of the air. And then comes this great interruption, or this great intervention, I should say. But God, who's rich in mercy, has made us alive together in Christ. He's given us life for our death. He's given us light for our darkness. He brought us from a a state of being cut off to being connected and to being alive in Christ. That's what the indicatives. It tells you what God has done. You and I were lost, but He intervened and He found us. We were estranged and He brought us near. We were enemies of God, but He's produced a reconciliation through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's raised us up and seated us with Christ in heavenly places. All these things describe the work of God in your life and in my life through Christ Jesus. And Paul begins his epistle by declaring that. That's called the indicatives. But what follows the indicatives in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is the so what of the gospel. So what does that mean? Well, look at Ephesians chapter 4 for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 says that as a result of what God has done, as a result of the the Father saving us through the Son and the Holy Spirit coming to fill us, and as a result of our being brought from death to life, now our response to that, your response to that, and my response to that, is that we might walk worthy of this God who has saved us. And we walk worthy of this God who has saved us. Ephesians 4, and I think about verse 25 and following, says... We live this out by putting off certain things and putting on certain things. For example, we put off lying in Ephesians 4.25 and we tell the truth. And here's good news, guys. We stop stealing and we work. And we don't work so that we can consume it all on ourselves, but we work so that we will be able to share to those who have a need. We put away anger. We put away, in Ephesians 4, corrupt communication, and we speak that which edifies, encourages, and builds up. But here's the thing that I want you to see. All this is a response to what God has done. We don't do these things to make ourselves commendable to the Lord. We don't get our act together, so to speak, in order to come to God. But our act comes together because we've been brought to God. We begin to walk in integrity and we begin to pursue holiness and we begin to develop a a gospel-grounded, a gospel-centered work ethic not to make ourselves more commendable to God, not to climb up some ladder of self-righteousness, but all of this, all of these things in Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 are a result of what God has worked in us. And I don't know if you can get your mind around that tonight, but you'll find that all in the Bible. You'll find, for example, God did not give His Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 until He had redeemed His people from bondage, until He had brought them out of Egypt by His mighty power and brought them into fellowship with Himself. Then He says, and this is how I'm calling you to live. That's called the imperatives of the gospel. Well, if you and I are going to fulfill the commands of the gospel. We have the riches of grace. We have responsibilities. 
If you and I are going to fulfill the commands of the gospel, if we're going to walk worthy of the call of God, if we're going to put off these things and put on these things, then it's absolutely necessary that you and I be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5.18. If you look there, the Holy Spirit is necessary for gospel obedience. Necessary to live a life that honors and pleases the Lord. In the translation that I'm using this evening, verse 18 begins with a conjunction, and, and it means a continuation. Paul is, is continuing his thought about walking worthy of the, uh, of the call that God's placed upon our lives. And starting in Ephesians 4, he makes the shift now to say this is how we live as a result of what God has worked in us in Christ. We walk worthy, we put off the old man, we put on the new man. We imitate God, we walk in love, we walk in the light, we walk wisely and so on. And if all that takes place in my life, if all that takes place in your life, it will only be because we've been enabled by God's Spirit to begin to live out a consistent lifestyle that honors the Lord. We cannot do that in the strength and energy of our own flesh. We just don't have it within us. And so in the middle of all these commands, all these imperatives, in verse 18, Paul calls our attention, the Bible calls our attention to the necessity, the nature of being filled with God's Spirit. If, if, we, were to, if we were to just to have Ephesians 1 and 2 and maybe 3, if we were just to have what God did in us in saving us, and we were to leave out the imperatives or the commands of the gospel, we would have justification without sanctification. We would have a Savior without a Lord. We would have forgiveness, but not freedom. We would have a legalistic, self-righteous Christianity truncated of the power of the living God filling and dwelling in the hearts of the people whom He has saved. And if we were to take just these, these uh, commands about stop lying and stop stealing and deal with your anger issues and, and uh, stop the filthy off-color jokes and all the stuff that you'll find in Ephesians 4 and 5, if you just preach that, if you just embrace that apart from what God has done in the power of the Holy Spirit, you end up with an evangelical Pharisaic spirit. You end up with self-righteousness. You end up with legalism. You end up with a powerless Christianity. At best or at worst, you end up with motivational speeches filled with Christian platitudes. And that's not Christianity. Christianity is not a success seminar about how to live a better life. Christianity is about fallen and flawed people being redeemed by a Savior, filled and empowered by a Spirit to live a life that is Christ-honoring and Christ-exalting. And apart from our being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, you and I simply are not able to do that. So in the middle of all this great, epistolary instruction and amidst all these important commands of Scripture, tucked in here is this important command about being filled with the Spirit. It's an important command and it has certain practical applications. Um, it's, um, um, it's what you would call, and um, well, I'll just, I'll just tell you. It's what you would call a it's present tense, it's a passive voice. It's in the imperative. You say, gosh, what does that mean? 
It means that being filled with the Spirit is to be an ongoing reality in our lives, not a one-time experience. It means that it's a command. It's not optional. The difference between a command and suggestion was when I was a kid and and, uh, my dad would say, uh, son, take the trash out. Or, son, it's Saturday, mow the lawn. He never said, son, do you feel like taking the trash out? Or, son, would you like to take the trash out? Uh, That would be a suggestion. The command was, son, take the trash out. Son, it's Saturday, you need to mow the lawn. This, the fact that this is a command says this to us, folks, that being filled with the Holy Spirit is not an option in the Christian life. It's a command. God's called us to be filled and empowered by the Spirit. It's a plural. It means it's not just for some, not just for a spiritually elite group, but being filled with God's Spirit is the command for all of us to be indwelt in a fresh way, in a vital way, in an ongoing way, in an overflowing and abounding way by the Spirit of the living God. One translation would suggest that it's being be being filled with the Spirit. We're baptized in the body of Christ one time, but there are many times in which you and I are filled or are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In our staff time today, we were talking about, we're reading through spiritual leadership by Oswald Sanders. And, and in the chapter, one of the chapters that we were in today um, was about the indispensable, indispensable necessity of being filled with God's Spirit. And he alluded to the book of Acts on several occasions. And undoubtedly you're familiar with the book of Acts. And the one thing that Jesus said to his disciples prior to his ascension in Acts 1 is, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you are filled with power from on high so that you can be my witnesses. And ten days later, the promise of our Lord was fulfilled. The Holy Spirit descended, filled all of those who were, um, uh, who were present And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were able to declare the mighty works of God. Listen, at least eight times in the book of Acts, you will find people being filled with the Spirit. It was not a one-time historical event, but it was an ongoing activity. An ongoing activity. There's a sense in which you and I need to be freshly infilled daily. Freshly infilled and empowered weekly to live a life that pleases and honors the Lord and to live out the gospel imperatives that this epistle and other epistles have called us to pursue and to embrace because left to ourselves, we simply can't do it. Well, to be filled with the Spirit then means several things. It it means to be moved forward. It means to be moved forward in spiritual growth and development under the Spirit's power like the wind filling the sails of a sailboat. Living on the Gulf of Mexico for a number of years, we saw sailboats, we saw um, parasailing, we saw kite boarding, uh, all kinds of things because the wind was always blowing on the coast. And there's a sense in which to be filled with the Spirit is, is to have the sails of our life filled so that we're propelled forward We're carried forward in spiritual maturity. We're carried forward in spiritual growth and in life transformation. But I would say this to you as a caution. The Holy Spirit never takes us beyond Christ. He never takes us beyond Christ. In the upper room discourse in John 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus is talking to His disciples 
and he talks to them about the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, if I could distill this to its essence, he says that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be to throw a floodlight, a spotlight, on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we're carried forward in spiritual growth and development, we're carried more fully and more deeply into the finished work of the Lord Jesus. We're never carried beyond Christ because the Holy Spirit has come to magnify Christ in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The Spirit's aim is not to give us some kind of mystical, esoteric experiences, but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order for Him to do that, He takes the cross of Christ and applies it more consistently and more deeply to our lives so that we increasingly die to ourselves and live for Jesus and live in the power of the risen Savior through the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be under His influence and under His control. I think that probably fits the context best in in verse 18 because it's comparing about being drunk with wine and being filled with the Spirit. A number of years ago, um, I had to go to the hospital in South Fulton. Um, There's a South Fulton, Tennessee, and there's a Fulton, Kentucky. Anybody have any idea where that is? I know you do because you used to live up there. Um, There was a a child who was taken to the hospital, and uh, it was late at night, and I was coming through uh, Fulton and coming back to the Tennessee side, no traffic, coming through this small town, and suddenly in my rearview mirror are flashing blue lights. And I pulled over, and I know the drill. Believe me, I know the drill. I reached for my wallet. I got out. I started walking back to the the patrolman's car, got my license out. He said, let's go back to your car. His partner got out with the flashlight. I said, sir, I didn't realize I was speeding. He said, we didn't pull you over for speeding. While he's talking to me, the other guy is looking through my car. I said, what did you pull me over for then? He said, we think you're under the influence. I said, under the influence? (laughs) He said, yeah, you were weaving coming through town. You kept crossing the lines, going around the curves and so on. I said, it's late and there was no cars and I wasn't aware that I was doing that. See, to be under the influence of something in this context, is to be under the control of something, to be governed by something. Now, let me clarify this. I was not under the influence. I was released and let go after a 30-day work program. Um, (laughs) The last thing I remember was saying something dumb like, you'll never take me alive. Uh, (laughs) That's not true either. (laughs) Um, But the other part is true. Um, The idea here is about being governed by something, and that's the comparison. It's to be influenced and governed by the Holy Spirit, to have our lives so filled with Him, so empowered by Him, to be so possessed by Him that His effects and control are apparent. It's obvious when someone's under the influence of alcohol. You've been around that. I've been around that. It's very obvious. It ought to be obvious in another kind of God-honoring way when someone is filled and influenced by God's Spirit. You know, one way we know that is because the fruit of the Spirit are produced, they're grown. In Galatians 5, the love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, and self-control begins to be produced in our lives. But the other way you and I know that we're being 
filled and controlled by God's Spirit is because of what follows in verses 19, 20, and 21. There are a list of characteristics here. Um, it's actually a, um, a participle, something called participles, but they're basically three consequences that are listed in verses 19, 20, and 21 in a life that's being filled by God's Spirit. Life change takes place. Life transformation takes place. And the first consequence of being filled with God's Spirit is evident in worship in verse 19. As a result of being filled with the Spirit of the living God, verse 19 says, We speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. The Spirit of God produces worship in the heart. The Spirit of God produces worship in the heart. We become a worshiping people. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 40, where the psalmist says, You brought me out of the miry clay, and you set my feet upon a solid rock, and you've given me a new song to sing. As a result of coming from death to life, as a result of God's Spirit bringing us out of darkness into light, He makes us a worshiping people. Over and over and over again in the Psalms, we are called to sing to the Lord. We don't sing to one another. We don't sing for one another. But over and over the psalmist says, Sing to the Lord. It has nothing to do with being able to carry a tune. It has to do with an attitude and posture of the heart that is produced by the Spirit of the living God. We become a worshiping people. And the joy of the Lord is in our lives. And it expresses itself in worship. Second characteristic, very quickly, that shows up in a life that's being filled by God's Spirit is the life abounds and overflows with thanksgiving in verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit produces a truly thankful heart that recognizes utter dependence upon the Lord for both gifts and graces, indeed for all things. And it seems, according to the Scripture, that there are levels of thankfulness thanking God for blessings, singing the doxology over His benevolence and His kindness is always an appropriate response. One of the common marks of the unconverted, the fallen in Romans 1 is ingratitude. Ingratitude, not being grateful, not recognizing the goodness of God and the hand of God. So as God's Spirit fills us, we not only become a worshiping people, but we become a grateful people. Grateful for the blessings of God, the goodness of God. Day after day, as Dr. Young uh, read the text on Sunday, day after day in Psalm 19, we see the handiwork of God across the heavens. We see His wisdom and His power, and our hearts are moved to gratitude that this Creator is also our Father. There's another level of thankfulness, though, and that's thankfulness in the sense of, of a hope for blessing and victory yet to come. Johnny Coggin is speaking to junior hires tonight. Anybody have junior high kids back there tonight? Be sure and ask them what Johnny Coggin spoke on. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat faced the first million-man march in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And he said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And they began to worship and praise God and thank God that he's a covenant-keeping God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's our God. And God obtained or accomplished a tremendous victory. So we thank God for blessings, yes. We thank God in anticipation of blessings and victories yet to come. A deeper level still of being thankful to God is in the midst of struggle, in the midst of hardship, 
in the midst of adversity, in the midst of tough times, of being able out of the heartache and the brokenness to thank and praise this kind and glorious and good God. And I think in this case here in Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, that's the sense that Paul is speaking of here. You know the story in Acts 5, the apostles were beaten and they left rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer in His name. You have to be filled with God's Spirit to be able to thank and praise God for beating suffered as a result of the offense of the gospel. Paul and Silas beaten with rods in Acts chapter 16 at midnight, they began to sing praise to God. And they began to thank the Lord and call upon His name. And in seasons of tremendous struggle, adversity, and trial, to be thankful to God, to recognize that He's appointed adversity as well as prosperity, requires a fresh empowerment, a fresh infilling of God's Spirit. And then the third consequence, not only worship and thanksgiving, but in verse 21, the third consequence of being filled with the Spirit shows up in our relationships with other people. Again, none of these, the worship, the thanksgiving, or the relationships with other people, is a private, secret, esoteric experience. All of this takes place in the community of faith. Worship and thanksgiving and being filled with the Spirit shows up in relationships. And what follows, and we're not going to go into this obviously, but what follows in Ephesians 5.22 all the way through Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 9, is three areas of relationship in which the and filling of the Holy Spirit is needed. Guess what the first one is, folks? It's marriage. It's marriage. Husbands, love your wives. Well, if I love Melinda as the Lord has called me to, I need to be filled with God's Spirit because I am so selfish, so self-serving, so into myself that if I am to love her as Christ loves the church, God the Holy Spirit will have to help me do that in a way that honors her and honors Him. Wives are called... Submit to their husbands as the church is called to submit to Christ. And if all of those tensions are worked out in the arena of marriage, then husbands and wives, we have to be filled with God's Spirit. And in the context of family, how many of you have teenagers? Let's see those hands. Boy, you talk about needing to be filled with God's Spirit. You wait till they become teenagers. My prayer nightly is, even so, Lord, come quickly. Um, But the Holy Spirit's infilling and His power in marriage and in family relationships in Ephesians 6, those opening verses, Fathers, bring your children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Children, honor your father and your mother. We need God's Spirit. And then those of you who are still grinding it out in the workplace, in Ephesians 6 and starting about verse 5 through 9, it talks about servants and it talks about... um, uh, Uh, employers, I should say, and employees. You talk about an arena in which you need to be filled with God's Spirit with the stresses and the strains and the dynamics of the workplace and the politics and the adversarial relationships that can develop and all the sin that can abound in the workplace. It's an arena in which you need to be filled and I need to be filled fresh with God's Spirit. And so if we're going to live for the Lord and honor Him as He's called us to do in marriage and family and in the workplace arena, it will be because God's Spirit has enabled us to do so. And His power, the Spirit's power, is released 
in each one of these areas, in marriage, in family, and at work, as we yield control to Him, out of the ongoing submission to Christ, each one of these authority figures, whether it's the, the husband or the parents, or even in the workplace, the Spirit's power is released as we depend upon the Lord and as we yield control to Him and as we submit afresh our lives to the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We must be filled with the Spirit's power because each one of these areas is an arena of unique spiritual warfare, isn't it? Um, I'm going to close up here, but um, just moving beyond this text just a little bit, just think with me for just about 30 seconds. Here we've been converted. We've been called from death to life. God through Christ has saved us. He sent His Spirit into our hearts and in our lives. And then He calls us to live a certain way in response to what He's done. Truthful lives. Honest lives. Lives that are, that are marked by peace and not by anger and, and harshness. And our communication, Ephesians 4, is to be sweetened by the sweetness of Christ. And we're to walk in this way. And then in the midst of all that, we've got marriage. And we're rearing children. And we're eking out a living. And do you know what follows those three areas of life in Ephesians 6? Incredible spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, 10, 11, and 12. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Though I tell you, sometimes it feels like it. We're wrestling against principalities and powers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places and rulers of darkness. And they will storm our marriage. They will attack us in our families. And they will show up in the workplace. And if we're going to live a life that honors the Lord then we must say, Oh God, fill me afresh with Your Spirit. And how does that happen? Let me suggest in closing a couple of things. I think it happens when we desire to be filled with the Spirit. When we recognize our spiritual impotence, when we recognize sin in our lives and we hunger to be filled with the Lord, and that desire is translated into prayer, simply saying, God, fill me with your spirit as a husband. Fill me with your spirit as a father, as a manager, as an employer, an employee. Show up in my life in this environment and bring honor to yourself in this arena. Jesus in John 7 said, If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink, and out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. The implication is all that's required is thirst. Do you and I desire to be filled with God's Spirit? The second thing that I would suggest about being filled with the Spirit is taking seriously sin issues in our lives. It's interesting to me that in Ephesians 4 and 5, you've got what we would call on our scale of righteousness, heinous sin, sexual immorality. But you know what Ephesians 4 says grieves God's Spirit as much as anything else? It's the quarreling. It's the anger. It's the fussing and the fighting that takes place in the church and in the home and in the workplace. And as a result of that, Ephesians 4.30 says, God's Spirit is grieved. He's saddened. So, number one, we desire, we thirst to be filled. Number two, we take seriously sin issues in our life and
confess and repent on a regular basis. And then simply, we simply ask. Jesus in Luke 11 says that if, if an earthly father knows how to give good gifts to his children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so at the end of this section of Scripture here tonight and as we close, might we not in this moment and in coming moments say to the Lord afresh, Father, cleanse me through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and fill me afresh and empower me afresh that I might live out all that you've desired and all that you've purchased and accomplished for me in Christ Jesus. I read a story of a farmer one time. He, his axe handle broke. He went to the hardware store into town and he uh, met a salesman there and the salesman talked him into purchasing a new chainsaw. He took that chainsaw home and began to use it and as the salesman left that day, he thought, well, I think I'll just drive out there, drive by and see how that chainsaw is working for that farmer. And he went out there and the farmer was out of breath and was soaked with perspiration and uh, hadn't made a dent in cutting the tree down. The farmer went up there and said, how do you like that? And he said, well... He said, I tell you the truth, I like my axe better. It sure was a lot easier. So the, the, the salesman went over there and put gas in the chainsaw. And he pulled the cord and fired it up and went right through the tree. Turned it off and put it down. And the farmer said, what was that noise? He had been trying to cut wood with a chainsaw that was not started I wonder, is that not descriptive of me sometimes in the Christian life? Trying to live for the Lord, trying to do the right thing in my own strength and ability as opposed to trusting and depending upon the Lord to fill me and empower me to live as He's called me to live. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your wonderful gifts to us, the gift of a Savior who has really and truly saved us for time and eternity. Thank You for the marvelous gift of your Holy Spirit. What incredible good news it is that the God we worship and adore, our Creator and our Redeemer, has come to dwell in the hearts of His people. Uh, might you open our understanding this evening and uh, may you apply uh, this passage to our lives in ways that, uh, that make for our good and our holiness and to may you fill us afresh and empower us as your sons and your daughters, all for the sake of Christ, for His honor and for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen. All right, Dr. Young's back next Wednesday night, and guess where he will be? Romans chapter 8.